Exodus chapter number 10, and uh, so if you can go ahead and find your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the book of Exodus chapter number 10, verse number 1, and we're going to do a little bit of reading all the way down to verse number 20, and I'm going to ask uh, Doug to do that tonight. He's going to come read those verses. Exodus chapter number 10, verse And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my sons before him. And that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son, and of thy son's son, what things I have brought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. And Moses and Aaron came unto Pharaoh, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else, if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth, groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy fathers' fathers have seen, since the day they were upon the earth unto this day. And he said, and he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go. Serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones. Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now ye that are men, and serve the Lord. For that ye did desire, and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt, and eat every herb of the land, and even all that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day, and all that night, and when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt, and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them there were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and there remained not any green thing in the trees, nor in the herbs of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God, and against you. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God, that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh, and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty, strong west wind, which took away the locusts, and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust on all the coasts of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go. Thank you, Doug. I asked him, would he mind reading the book of Exodus? Would he mind reading Exodus tonight? He said, yeah, I don't think I'll be reading the book of Exodus, 40 chapters long or anything. So, uh, but I appreciate him reading that. I like to hear other men reading the Word of God and... Uh, it's good for our ears to hear the Word of God. I want you to imagine just for a few moments that you are in Egypt. You're in Egypt right now. It's hot, it's dry. The place around you does not look like it used to. Not at all. Trees are broken. The crops are nearly gone. The cattle are gone. Some people are starting to get their hair back since they lost it all during the lice. Chunks of hail perhaps are melting in the hot sun. 
Life as you know it has been destroyed completely. Then you start to feel an east wind blow on your face. All that day, and you hear it blowing all that night. The next morning, you wake up, go outside, and start your normal day. Maybe you're drinking your cup of coffee or whatever you drank there in Egypt, and you're sitting there, and a little locust lands on your knee. Oh, that's disgusting, some of you are thinking. Where did he come from? Locusts were not something that was very prominent to the country of Egypt. It wasn't something that happened every year. It wasn't a famine of great proportions of this, or a plague of great proportions like this, that even the Bible says that your, even your grandfathers have never even seen something like this, nor will they ever see it again. One little one lands on your knee, and you flick it off, maybe stamp on it, and squash it. Good riddance to you. Then you feel that strange east wind again. You look over the horizon and you see a dark cloud forming. And you think to yourself, huh, a thunderstorm must be coming. Is this another plague? Another hailstorm? Another lightning storm? Is something else coming at us? But it's worse. And then you hear something else. You hear a distinct buzzing noise. A hum, almost. And as the cloud gets closer, the hum gets louder. And then you realize that another locust has landed up on your knee. And then there's one on your head. And then you realize that the dark cloud that was forming was not a thunderstorm. But rather it was billions and billions of locusts coming upon the land. This plague, unlike any of the other plagues, it seems that its effect is far more reaching. It is not just upon those that are encompassing around where Pharaoh lives, but rather we find in our text, as Doug already read to us, that it covers the whole entire land of Egypt. Everywhere. Everywhere you look, you're stepping, looking at, and seeing locusts. I thought it was interesting. I found a real account of a real locust plague that was written to us for us in 1646. Let me read it a little bit to you. It was a phenomenal account to behold it. They hatched in the springtime, and being yet as scarce able to fly, the ground was covered with them. All the houses were full of them, even the barns and stables and the chambers and the cellars. When the door was open, an infinite number came in to our houses, and others went fluttering about. It was a troublesome thing. When a man went abroad, that is, when he traveled by horseback, he was hit in the face by those creatures. He was hit in the nose, in the eyes, and in the cheeks. So that there was no, listen to this, this is a real account. There was no opening one's mouth, but some would get in. This is what was happening in Egypt. Yet all of this was nothing. Do you understand that? I wonder, everything I've told you and reported to you at this point is nothing. For when we were to eat, they gave us no break. When we cut a piece of meat, we cut a locust with it. <laughs> and when we opened our mouth to put in a morsel, we were sure to chew one of them up with it also. That's the plague we're dealing with. That is the horror that these people experienced. The Bible says in Exodus 10, 6, And they shall fill thy houses and the houses of all thy servants and houses of all the Egyptians. They filled the houses. Verse 15 says they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was actually dark. It was dark. One report of a locust plague in the Middle East reports that a group of locusts could eat a whole entire bush down to the stub, down to the root, in less than an hour. A whole entire large bush. He says they did eat every herb of the land. They ate all the fruit of the trees and which the hail had left. There remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? Looking outside right now, I know we're in a drought, but looking outside and seeing nothing green, not one thing, they ate it all. You say, why? You say, what's the point? 
Well, the point of it all is the point of many of the plagues, and that is to humble the life of Pharaoh, and to humble Pharaoh's servants, and to humble the people of Egypt, and really to humble us. You see, the sin of pride is opposed by God. And in verse number three, we find our text verse. He says there, Speak ye unto all the congregation, or excuse me, going back to chapter 10. He says in verse number three, he says, And Moses came, Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, listen to this very, very direct question. How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? What is it going to take? What is it going to take? How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Pharaoh's sin of pride would be ultimately the downfall of him, his servants, his army, and his whole entire nation. The pride that would not let the people go and worship the Lord in the wilderness. How long will you refuse to humble thyself? And I ask us, is there anything that perhaps that is in our lives that we need to ask how long will we not humble ourselves before God in these areas? How long can we go? I believe that pride is our ultimate sin. I don't think there's any doubt in that. I think we all struggle with it. I think we struggle with it on a daily basis. On a daily basis. I think at times we struggle with it on an hourly basis. It is the root cause of many and probably all the other sins that we do commit. It's a tough sin. It's tough to identify at times, I think. I think there's times that we think we're humble, but we're actually prideful. I think there's times in which we don't even recognize our own pride. Pride is a very difficult and can be very hard to recognize, but at times it can be very simple and easy to recognize. It's obvious in our text and in our story here that Pharaoh is a very proud person. <clears throat> Nobody goes through seven plagues that he's gone through and continues to stay in the state that they're in unless they're a prideful person. Amen? Unless you're a proudful person, to watch the complete annihilation of your nation just because. Understand now, God has not asked him to permanently let the people go. God has simply asked him to let the people go and worship in the wilderness. That is all he has asked. Those are his terms. Let my people go and worship in the wilderness. And Pharaoh has said, no, 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 no. And he continues to do so through this plague and through the next plague until finally in the 10th plague, it's enough. And he says, just get out of here. We don't even want to see your faces anymore. I want us to learn some key areas and notice some key areas in which we can learn to be humble before God. How can we as believers be humble before the Lord? I want you to notice, first of all, verse number two. I think this is the first key to being humble before God in our text this evening is number one is remember the works of God. Remember the works of God. He tells Moses before he even sends him into Pharaoh, he says to him that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart and that Moses essentially has nothing to worry about. That Moses, God is going to protect him and that he is going to show him the signs before him. And Moses fearlessly walks into Pharaoh, but before he does, in verse number two, he gives us a great reason why part of reason why the plagues have come upon the people of Egypt. It's not just for the sake of the Egyptians, nor is it just for the sake of the release of the Israelites, but rather there is a very good reason given to us why these plagues have come, and that is 
to remember the works of God. He says in verse number two, he says, I'm telling you, I'm sending you in that thou mayest tell it in the ears of thy son and of thy son's sons, son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that ye may know how that I am the Lord. Whenever we forget the mighty works of God, we begin to become prideful. We begin to become prideful. We start to think that we are the ones that got us to where we at, that we are the ones that we have got us to the place of success or whatever it is. And we cannot think that. Such thinking like that is deadly. It's deadly in our Christian life. But that's exactly what the children of Israel did. Don't you know that? They did not remember the works of God. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. And let's just see very quickly what happened to the children of Israel after they left Egypt, after Moses dies, after they've conquered very much land in the land of Canaan, they begin to get prideful. And how does it all come about? Look to Judges chapter number 2 and verse number 7. Judges 2 7 says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the day, all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath Haris in the mount in the, in the mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill of Gesh. And also all the generation were gathered together under their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord. Did you see that? Nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, out of the of gods of the people that were around about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and delivered them to the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them. He sold them to the hands of the enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. We see here that the people of Israel forsook God they forgot the works of the Lord, and they were prideful, and they willfully went after idolatry. They willfully went after these things. And it is a danger that can happen to all of us. We can all forget the great and mighty works of God. All that men would praise the Lord and remember and think about and not forget the wonderful works that God has done to the children of men. Man, that would be a wonderful thing if none of us ever forgot those things. But we can all forget about the wonderful works of God. But let me tell you something that's even worse than that. Is that our children can forget. How are our children going to remember the wonderful works of God? We're going to have to tell them. The Bible tells us that one of the reasons that God raises up children in godly families is in, verse, in Malachi 2.15, he says, And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. It's a word that may be a little bit differently so that we have a better understanding. He's saying that what was God seeking in Malachi 2.15? What was he seeking to accomplish in a godly marriage? What was he seeking to accomplish? He was seeking to accomplish godly Offspring. That's what he was seeking to accomplish. He wanted to see children raised up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, in the remembrance of godly things. And if we as parents do not share with our children about the godly things and the good things and the wonderful things that God has done to us, then they are prone to forget just as much as we are. This is a, not a strange event because even the New Testament reminds us in Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. We've got to be very careful. There are sometimes, and there are many people that say, well, I know God, I know the Lord, but do they talk about it? 
Do they remind you of him? Do they speak good of him? Do they talk how good he has been to them? We cannot simply profess that we know God to our children. We cannot simply just read the Bible to them. We cannot simply just bring them to church. We are going to have to remind them and tell them and talk to them about the wonderful works that God has done. I brought this highlighter here tonight to emphasize a point. What does a highlight do? Highlighter do? It highlights stuff. Wow, that was deep. <laughs> this is what you need to do with, your, with the works of God. You need to highlight the works of God in your life. You need to take brief intervals and highlight the works of God. Write them down whenever they uh, good work happens to you. Write it down and then rehearse the work to your children. Talk about when you ever you got saved. Talk about the goodness of God. Talk about how God perhaps provided in a very big way. Maybe He healed somebody. Maybe He brought somebody out of a calamity. Emphasize His provisions when they are apparent. Whenever God's provision is made, talk about it to your children. Tell them about it. Let them know about it. Let them know. They, it, they need to see a God that is alive. Not a God that is dead. Whenever something strikes your mind that is uh, about the Lord, talk to your kids about it. Tell them about it. Highlight God in your life. We get prideful when we don't highlight God. When we don't highlight the Lord. You might even take your Bible. I don't know if you write in your Bible. You might even take your Bible and take a highlighter and Write and, and highlight every single place that it speaks about God or the Lord. I tell you what, you might have a pretty marked up Bible. Because the Bible talks a lot about God. Highlight the Lord in your life. The re, one of the re ways in which we are going to become more humble. And let's just deal with that for a moment. Is it wrong for you to say, well, I'm, 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 I feel like I'm more humble than I was last year. We should be able to say that. With humility, of course. It's not that we're saying that out of pride, but we are literally just saying, you know what, I'm growing in the Lord. I'm growing in grace. I see that. I see that at one point in my life, I was very, very prideful. Nobody could say anything to me. I would just, I'd just lose it all. I'd just get so mad and frustrated and angry and get offended at people. But I've seen God do a work in my heart. I've seen Him humble me. I've seen Him do something to me. And I'm not like that anymore. And I praise God and I give God the glory for that. We ought to see God humbling us and us becoming more humble, becoming more like Him. That's what the Bible says. In Philippians 2.5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Is the, that is the mind of humility. Is the mind of humility in you? Is it in you? He says that we in Colossians 2, or Colossians 3, he says that we ought to put on humiliation of mind. Do you have humiliation of mind? When you look inside, do you see humiliation? Do you see humility? I hope you see a little bit. Amen? I hope you see something. I hope you see God working in you, growing you. May God do that for us. It's going to start by remembering the works of God. Remember the works of God. Don't forget them. Highlight. Number two, I would say this, that you ought to look at verses number 8 through 11. How are we going to be able to stay away from the sin of pride? Now, of course, I don't have time to deal with this. This is a massive subject. I was just uh, listening to a lecture on pride not too long ago, and the, and the uh, teacher gave 37 ways be prideful. And he said, I could give you 50 more, but I'm time is running out. <laughs> 37 different ways to be prideful. Whew, after he got through the list, I was like, man, <laughs> I'm pretty prideful. That's pretty bad right there. Maybe I'll share them with you sometime. Hey, I'm just saying tonight that God, we do all have a problem with pride. It's not just Pharaoh. It's not just the unsaved. It's not just the unbeliever. All of us deal with this pride on a daily basis and we have to remember the works of God. And secondly, we have to, we have to 
resign ourselves to the commandments of God. We have to give ourselves up over to the commands of the Lord. Yield ourselves to God. Pharaoh did not resign himself to God and his commandments. In fact, he didn't resign himself to them, but rather he repealed the commandments of God. He denied them. He went against them. He said, no, thank you. I'm calling that back. I don't want that. I'm not going for that. Look at verse number 8. And Moses and Aaron were brought again into Pharaoh. Pharaoh's servants finally get a little, maybe a little bit of wisdom in their hearts. And they say, are you going to let them go out of here and plague us again? Get them back in here. Now that took a little bit of gall from these servants. Consider that Pharaoh was considered God, okay, for a moment. And they're talking to a God, per se. And they said, you're going to let them do what they said. Get them back in here. Well, it doesn't turn out too good for them. For he says, and Pharaoh said, go serve the Lord your God, but, and, he, and I know it's in the italics here, but the emphasis is placed on the word but here too. We always have problems with the Lord. Listen to me here. When we say, God, I'll do it. But, yes, Miss Melissa, she said, but. Uh, Lord, I'll take care of them. But. <laughs> and sometimes we say it real quietly. I'll do it, but. If or if, you'll do See, that's where he messed up. Go serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? Just tell me who's going to go into the wilderness. And Moses tells him. He says, we're all going. Every one of us. And there's not one of us staying behind you. Hey, isn't that good to think about right there? That in worship, that we're all going. Amen? Praise the Lord. He says, we're all going. We're going to worship. Every one of us, our old and our young and our sons and our daughters and our flocks and our herds. Every one of us are going. Okay? Clear. Crystal clear. And in verse number 10... He says, and he said unto them, let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go. And your little ones look to it for evil is before you. Now that verse is a little, you're saying, what, what, is he, what does he mean by that right there? What, is, what is Pharaoh is saying is this. He says, let the Lord be so with you. He's telling him, he's saying, listen, here, Moses, I'm going to tell you something right now. Is that I'm not letting you go out there with all those people. And if you're going to go out there, God better be with you. Because I certainly ain't letting you go. Let me say it maybe even a little bit more Matthew Cox terms. And I'll let you go when pigs fly, okay? If you want everybody to go, then hey, when pigs start flying, that's when I'll let you go. Let the Lord be with you. Because I know evil is before you. I know you got evil in your heart. What he's saying to them is, the moment you get out there, you're not coming back to me. Let, I know what your plan is, Moses. You're a snide one. You're a sly one. You're going to get one over on me. Let the Lord be with you if I let you go and your little ones. Yeah, right. You might as well forget it. Not so, he says in verse number 12, verse number 11. That's pretty plain. I don't think I've got to explain that to you. Not so, right? Forget it. Deal is off. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord. If anybody's going to go, it's just going to be you men, nobody else. For that you did desire. And they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the, for the locusts. Fine. If he's going to treat me that way and treat my commands that way, fine. Send the locusts. A sure way to prove that we're ever prideful is to repeal, revoke, and retract the commands of God. To go back and to deny His word. Don't fight against God. You never win. Whenever Saul was on the road to Damascus and was confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord says to him, a very serious comment, he says, I am the Lord Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. What does that mean? He's saying to Saul, basically, Saul, are you going to keep fighting me? Fighting me? Because if you're going to keep fighting me, 
And I'll put it again in a modern in a modern way. You might as well go out there and try to kick down a telephone pole and hope it falls down. All right? That's about what it's going to be like fighting against God. Does that make sense? You're going to break your shins and you're going to end up a terrible mess trying to knock down a telephone pole by kicking it with your own bare feet. It ain't going to happen. And just as much as you're not going to fight and win against God. Pharaoh offers him the opportunity to leave, but he will not take it because it is wrong. And he retracts on it. He blasphemes God. He says, yeah, right. I'm not doing it. Let God be with you if I ever let you go and your little ones. We might think that sometimes we can go against God and his word and still still win. But we never can. We never can go against God and win. Jesus reminded the Pharisees in Mark 7, verses 9 through 13, and he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, or I give you a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be propped by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do all for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. He brings this accusation against the Pharisees, and he says, he says to them, he says, you've got this new tradition now that says that you can just do this one-time gift, this one-time gift to your parents, and you think that you've fulfilled all the law of Moses. You think that you're good to go. You don't have to obey the, the fifth commandment anymore, honor thy father and thy mother. You think that you don't have to do that anymore. Well, I'm telling you, Jesus says, you're wrong. Amen? You're wrong. And man, sometimes there's a fault within even our own Christian society. That, man, well, I've done this for mom and dad. Well, I've taken care of I've done this for, for them. I'm good to go. No, you're not. Honor thy father and the mother. That goes to the end of their life. That goes to the end right there. And I'm, I'm pretty sure and I believe it probably even goes past that. You cannot go against his principle. That's just one that, that came up. But you cannot go against the principles of godliness, of immorality, or slander, or lying, or stealing, or alcohol, or hate, or any of those things without first being right. Don't buck at God's terms. They are his terms. He set them up. You didn't, I didn't, he did. Amen? They're his terms. The terms for Pharaoh were simple. Pharaoh, let us go, everybody, and we'll be okay. Pharaoh says, uh-uh, only the men. Fine, we're leaving, we're done for, locusts are coming. We make all kinds of excuses people do for not loving somebody or not loving a parent. People make up reasons to be bitter or to be unforgiving. We've got all kinds of terms set aside and all kinds of excuses for not staying married. We lay down our terms for why we can sin and do what is wrong. All of that is just pride, folks. That's all it is. It's all just rotten, stinking pride. Because what we're really saying is this. God, we know what you said. We know your terms. But here's our terms. What is that saying? I know better than you. That's what, it, that's, what that's saying. I know better than you. We need to give in to the Lord's terms. We need to be expected to listen. We need to give in to His terms. Listen to what He has to say. Surrender ourselves to the full will of God. Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand and believe God's will and His word, and then yield yourself to it. And then finally, how are we going to remain humble? How are we going to follow through with verse number 3 whenever He asks Him? He says, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Well, I think that would be, that would be a, a I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with us asking ourselves that question. Lord, how long will I refuse to not humble myself before you? God, am I holding back on something? Then remember the works of God. 
Lord, I want to be humble. I, I don't want to be a prideful person. Then remember God's works. Remember Him. Resign yourself to the will of God. Give yourself over to His will and His way. And then thirdly, I would say this in closing. Repent. Don't regret. And I brought a little bit of allusion to that this morning when I was preaching. But let me just expound on that a little bit this evening. It's time that we stop saying just the words, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There is, with those words, no doubt, I think, a pinch of repentance. But most of the time, there's a bucket of remorse and regret. A lot of times, an I'm sorry can just be, well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. My bad. What is that? What is that? Is that repentance? Oh, I'm sorry. And they just keep on, and just, we're just, we're just done. We're all, I, you know, somebody cusses you out. I'm sorry, I should have said that. What, what is that? that? That's not, that's not repentance. Uh, that, that might be a little regret, a little remorse, a little, I kind of feel a little bad about that. The idea is I, I feel sorry. I really feel bad for what I did. My actions perhaps cause grief, and I acknowledge that, okay? So, so what? Right? Okay, All right, you're sorry. That, thank you. Now, now, what are you going to do about that? How are we going to change this and not let it happen again? Does that make sense? That's repentance. That's not regret. We, we, don't, we, we have too many I'm sorry's, and, and I'm just as guilty of it, and I'll raise my hand. I, I've been there. Oh, I, I'm sorry, sweetheart. I, you know, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. And, and it's just an I'm sorry, and it's just something to kind of make me feel better, not really make them feel better. That's pride, really, when you think about it. And really, when it bull, and I know we, I know, listen to me, I know we don't always mean it this way, okay? But I'm sorry when you really boil it down and think about it. What are you saying? I feel sorry. What is that? That's self-pity. Self-pity is just pride. We, we just can you say I'm sorry or be repentant? Amen. You can. Okay. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. When some next person, time, next time your spouse says I'm sorry to you, well, you're not really me. You know, <laughs> don't do that to them. Okay, that's not what I'm saying here tonight. Okay. You're just being regretful. You're not being really remorseful. You're not being repentant. That's not, that's not what I mean. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Repentance in our life is the only thing that brings about real change. Regret and remorse were about as far as Pharaoh ever got. He didn't get much, he didn't get any further than that. Look in our text here, and you'll see that very plain. In verse number 16, he says, Then Pharaoh called Moses, and after all this was done, after the locust plague had happened and all the horrible things, he calls Moses in in haste, and he says, I have sinned against the Lord God and against you. He even doesn't say, I'm sorry, but he actually says, Forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord God, and may take this away from me. You see, Again, what is he going for? Take this away from me. Man, that, that, is, that is so reminiscent, that is so I guess, descriptive of what somebody is when they're just being regretful and remorseful. They're concerned about the consequences. That's what their concern is, just like Saul was. Saul was pleading with Samuel, even rips his garment to tell him to come back. Why? Because he, he wants, he, he, he fears the consequences. And the Lord, and he says, and he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. The Lord does it. The Lord is gracious. Amen. The Lord is merciful. Praise God for that. Aren't you glad that even when we come to God and our hearts are not completely in a right state or in a right motive, that God is still merciful? Amen. Isn't that wonderful? That's, uh, his, his compassions do not fail. Man, his compassions are so... They are, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It's like God's compassions, like... They renew, you know, every single morning. You know what I mean? 
It'd be like me going out to my garden and clipping off a bunch of lettuce out there and eating it that evening. And then going back out there the next morning, it's all grown back up again, you know? And then I'm just, that's the way God is with mercy. I mean, you just keep going back to God for mercy and it's just there every single time you go for it. Isn't that wonderful? Every single day. Even when motives are not exactly the way they should be. I find it interesting, a real quick comment here, that God with a wind brings in the locust and with a strong wind, a hurricane, gale force type wind, takes the locust out. God is in control of the wind. He's in control of everything. And what's also interesting to me is that he cast them into the Red Sea. Kind of a little bit of a picturesque moment here. That just as the locusts were cast into the Red Sea, so the Egyptians would be cast into the Red Sea one day. And God would have his final judgment on them. And so we see in verse number 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so they would not let the children of Israel go. How do we know it was this regret and remorse and not repentance? He still didn't let them go. He didn't change. He's reminiscent of a person that we know in Scripture by the name of Esau. For you know that how the afterward he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Lots of remorse, lots of regret, but no repentance. How do you know that, preacher? Look what happens as soon as he goes out from his father Isaac. What does he want to do? He wants to kill Jacob. He wants to kill him. No repentance. No repentance. Also, we read in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. There is worldly sorrow. It feels really bad for the wrongdoing that they have done, but it only works death. And I would say this is where the world gets into its guilt that it has over past sin and past regret. It feels, it only... The regret and remorse, where he says there that in verse number seven, chapter seven, verse number ten, he says that the worldly sorrow only works death. It only works death. Regret and remorse only bring about more pain, more suffering, more hurt. It only stirs up more old feelings of hate, anxiety, and brings about deep depression. Regret and remorse are never healers. They do not heal anybody. They will not heal you, and nor will they heal anybody in which you are working with. They don't heal. They don't help. It says they bring death. Death. And this is very key if you're ever working with somebody, counseling with somebody. This is a very key verse in this. I just really feel bad about it. Listen, you need to stop feeling bad about it. Regret and remorse accomplish nothing. Repentance is what is needed. Repentance is what is needed. True repentance brings healing. One can never have or begin to have lasting and permanent change. Listen to me, folks. This is so key with our Christian life. If you don't think that lasting and permanent Change can come to your Christian life, then you do not believe the Scriptures. You don't believe the Word of God. The Word of God speaks of sanctification. We can all, and we all can be changed. All of us. We don't have to be the old person. You need to stop resigning to the fact that, well, that's who I was, or that's how I grew up, or I'm just a, you know... <laughs> My wife and I kid around and stuff. Well, I'm just a redhead and everything. Or I'm just this or I'm just that. Or I've had these problems or anything. All of that does. All that is doing is casting doubt on God. And it's not being fully repentant and understanding that real change can come to any of us. Why is repentance key? Here's the key reason. Remorse and regret only deal with guilt on this level. You see this? It only deals with it here. 
Repentance deals with it here. The lady with the issue of blood for 12 years never found help until she touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And listen to me. You'll never have true healing from a past hurt or whatever it is. A sin that you were involved with maybe years ago. You'll never have healing over any of that. Until first repentance towards God is established. As long as we stay in a state of regret and an unrepentant heart toward God or in our sin, we will remain prideful. We will justify our sin. You say, what if it was somebody that hurt me? They hurt me. We're not in a scenario like here. Somebody hurt me. Don't I have I have regret? I have remorse over that. No, 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 no. Listen. It's time that you repent and say, God, I don't understand why you allow things to happen to me in the way that they've done. But I trust you fully and completely. We have all had horrible, horrible things that have happened to us. Some worse than others. But just being remaining mad, angry, upset, and sorrowful about it, is not going to change anything. Never will regret change your life. You'll continue to justify yourself. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be mad. It's okay to be bitter. It's okay to be sinful. It's okay I get a pass here. I'm this, I'm that. But when you call out to God and recognize your true need is in Him and nothing else, then real healing can begin. There's hope in Christ, I'll tell you that, my friend. There is hope in Christ. Hope in the Lord. Romans 2.4 says, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness or forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Somebody that has a past regret, a past hurt, somebody that is remaining in their pride does not look at God and say, God, you are a good God. You are an awesome God. But somebody that has a repentant heart towards God as it says in Acts 20 and 21, he says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody that has a repentant heart towards God is able to look at God in all sincerity and hope and say, God, you are a good, loving God. You are a God of love and care that loves me. You don't want to see me remain in my sinful condition. You want to see me change. You want to see real change come about in my life. God, I have a problem with pride. I have an issue, God. And I need your help. Repentance, not regret, is the key to the change in everyone. Any of us that want to begin to see real humility in our lives must repent. We must, in fact, and I've been saying this the last couple of weeks, we must live a lifestyle of repentance. A lifestyle of repentance. Where we're continually repenting and asking God for forgiveness and help and change. Continually. Not stopping. If you don't think you need to repent of anything, then my friend, the question would remain to you tonight. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before God? We all, none of us, have arrived. Amen? None of us are there. We'll all be changed in a moment. And twinkle them an eye. Amen? And what you look like down here in earth is going to look drastically different from what you looked up here. You're not working up here and going to be like, well, I'll kind of be close to it. Uh-uh. 
that which is mortal must put on immortality. Does that make sense? Let me go out here and hit you with a... No, I don't want to say that. All right, but let me hit you upside the head with a baseball bat, okay? And see how you feel afterwards. Not just painfully, but see how you feel towards me, okay? This body is different from this body. It's totally different. There's going to be a radical and amazing change that is going to happen. But I cannot tell you something that you already know. Pinch yourself. You're not there yet. You're still working on it. And you need, and I need to, and we all need to work on our pride every single day of our lives. How long will thou refuse to humble thyself before God? Well, I love Isaiah 57, 15, though. For he says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. With him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. God wants us to humble our hearts. Wants us to humble ourselves before Him. And if we don't, we might be eating locust pie later on. Or worse, you might harden your heart to the point that God begins to harden your heart. And friend, that is a dangerous position that none of us want to be in. May God help us to be humble. And we see the example of Pharaoh, who though time and time and time again had lots of regret, but no repentance. Remember the works of God. Resign yourself to God's will. Repent. Don't regret. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this evening.